1: This is a closer look with Arthur Levitt. Arthur Levitt is a former chairman of the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, a Bloomberg LP board member, a senior advisor to the Promontory Financial Group, and a policy advisor to Goldman Sachs. This is a closer look at John Hennessy. He's the chairman of Alphabet, the parent company of Google, and he has a long career of achievements in computer science and engineering, and too many awards to list here. He is one of the longest-serving presidents in Stanford University's history with a 16-year tenure, having first joined the faculty in 1977. He stepped down in 2016 to start the Knight-Hennessy Scholars Program. He's here today to talk about his new book, Leading Matters, where he shares the core elements of leadership that helped him become a successful tech entrepreneur and nonprofit administrator. He joins me now for a closer look. You chose a job at Stanford when you were starting out, though it wasn't the offer with the best salary. What was your motivation, John?
2: It's a great question, Arthur. Um, my motivation was that. The quality of the faculty and the students who were coming to Stanford were simply superb. And I felt like I wanted to be with colleagues who were the very best uh, in the world.
1: You write in your new book that when you arrived at Silicon Valley in 1977, Apple was a year old and the Internet and personal computers and cell phones hadn't yet been invented. What's it been like to be at ground zero of this technology leap? Could you even imagine the changes? I
2: certainly couldn't imagine them. I, I, when I go to visit, go down to Google and go to the Googleplex and realize that that used to be a family farm, uh, there, it, it's just stunning. And the waves of innovation, one after the other, along came the VLSI revolution and the personal computer, along came the internet, along came search and the World Wide Web, along came social media. It just seems every, Five, six, seven years there's a new wave comes that that creates lots of opportunities.
1: If you had to name the one occurrence that surprised you the most, what would that be?
2: Oh, I think without a doubt it was the 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 way the web brought the power of the internet and online to everybody. I still remember going over to visit Jerry Yang and David Filo when they were building Yahoo as a, as a Stanford project before the company started. And they showed me that their favorite pizza place um, was now allowing you to look at the menu and order online. And when I saw that, I realized This isn't just about a tool for scientists and techies. This is about a technology that will change the world.
1: Early in your career at Stanford, you invented something, and you were encouraged to leave to start a company to bring it to market because of Gordon Bell. Who was he, and what did he tell you, and why did you take this risk?
2: That's a great question. Gordon, Gordon was one of the early engineers at Digital Equipment Corporation. At that time, still the second largest computer company in the world. Um, and he was an entrepreneur himself. And he came to me and said, you know, this technology is terrific. It's really disruptive. Therefore, the existing players are going to be reluctant to bring it to market because it will obsolete their current product line. And he said, if you really believe in this technology, you have to start a company. You have to help bring it to market. Um, and he convinced me and I convinced two of my uh, co-founders, and we were off and running.
1: You wrote about what you learned from a mistake you made with this first company, MIPS. Tell us that story.
2: I made several errors, but I think the, big, the biggest error was we found ourselves in a situation where we were looking for a CEO and we found somebody who we thought was really terrific uh, but he had had bad problems with other with other founders on his board and insisted that the founders give up their one board seat. And unfortunately, um, we, did, we agreed to that. And in the end, it turned out to be a mistake that almost uh, cost the company its life. I mean, we ran through a lot of money. We had to do a layoff. We had to do a reset. Um, and luckily, we found a new CEO and who, despite the fact that we were almost broke, uh, was willing to take a chance on the technology. Um, we rebuilt the company. We kept the core technical team, which was key, and, and got the company regoing. But it was, it was a, a tough situation. Uh, when you lay off a third of your workforce uh, in a small company, it can be decimating.
1: You write about how starting a private company gave you a new view of what your university department could do in the world. Tell us about that.
2: Well, I think I, I discovered two things. First of all, um, there was a gap between what we were teaching and sometimes the the experience that we needed to prepare our students for working in the real world. So I'm a big believer that if we if we graduate an engineer, they should be able to go out and argue about why their new innovation, their new discovery, their new invention has real merit, not only technically, but also say something about it financially and what it might do for the company. So I discovered that along the way and brought that back uh, to my students with a greater focus, not only on building faster computers or building better computers, but also thinking about what they cost. I think the other the other um, lesson for me was that decision-making uh, in a university is often very haphazard. It tends to go very slow. Boy, when you're in a startup, uh, time is money. You have to learn how to make decisions under, under uh, gray circumstances that aren't black and white. Uh, and when you're running any large organization, including a university, you have to be able to do that. And that's a skill I learned uh, starting a company in the Valley.
1: John, you were the president of Stanford, along with your provost, John W. Etchmendi, for 16 years. Why did this partnership work so well? And how unusual is the length of your tenure?
2: Well, it's certainly unusual, Arthur. Right now, um, presidents in in public and private universities seem to last somewhere between seven and eight years, a provost even shorter. So I I had the enormous advantage of having not only a very capable provost, but one that was dedicated to the university and turned down many uh, opportunities to be a president elsewhere. And what worked for us is we had a partnership. We uh, always knew what the other person was doing or thinking. We coordinated carefully, but we also divided things up. So I felt comfortable handing something over to the provost as my chief operating officer, so to speak. And he felt comfortable handing things to me so that while we were coordinated, we could split our efforts apart and make, and make uh, our, our activities more effective that way.
1: Biographer Walter Isaacson wrote the foreword to your book, and he says he found the chapter about the power of storytelling for leaders to be unexpected but profound. Why is storytelling important, and what's an example of that?
2: So for me, storytelling is about crafting a vision, helping people go to some place where there is great opportunity, but where they're not sure about how the journey might work or what the opportunity is. And I think possibly the one of the best stories I ever wove was when we talked about what became the Knight-Hennessey uh, Scholarship Program. And I first talked to a group of, of my trustees about it at a retreat. And I, I wove a story talking about the impact that uh, the Rhodes Scholarship had uh, had over the years, and some of the distinguished Americans that had benefited from that, and pointed out that Stanford could do something similar in our own country, rather than having students go abroad on the West Coast at an institution known for its entrepreneurial uh, capabilities. And that um, that uh, that was a short speech. It was it was a story. It was five or ten minutes. Imagine what we could do. Uh, but at the end of that every single uh, person in the room, every one of our trustees was supportive.
1: You write about the importance of empathy in leadership, though lately there's an antipathy to this by government and business leaders. Why is this so important? And is it possible to develop that quality in our leaders?
2: I think it is possible to develop it. I think it's something that uh, many of us develop when we're young, but it's a it's a gene that can be enhanced over time as you see and experience a wider range of, uh, of the paths that people travel in their lives. I think it's important because um, understanding the challenges that others have, if you're leading an institution, and it doesn't matter whether it's a country, a state, a company, a nonprofit institution, understanding the struggles that the members of that uh, of that group are going through, is important to to getting their confidence to thinking about how you want to go forward. Um, you know, in a university, faculty leaders of universities often fail because their faculty revolt, and their faculty revolt, I think, primarily because the leadership doesn't listen to them enough and doesn't empathize with the challenges they're facing. So for me, it was an important skill to to be engaged with 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 the faculty and students across the university.
1: Now, security can't be taught. And I think we have enough examples of leadership without humility to question that characteristic.
2: Yeah, I think it's, it's, humility is crucial because it does several things for you, I believe. First of all, it, it makes it okay to admit that you don't know everything, that you're not an expert and that you sometimes make mistakes. And denying – if you ever find yourself in a situation where you think you're the smartest person in the room and you begin acting like it, it's a recipe recipe for disaster. Um, So humility reminds you that it's okay to ask for help. It's okay to expect your colleagues to provide expertise where you don't have it. Um, And I think people who remember that build much better teams – And no one can do any of these important leadership jobs alone. You simply can't do it.
1: You write about the decisions you had to make after the financial crash of 2008 decimated the university's budget. At the same time, you had introduced the largest increase in its history for undergraduate financial aid. Tell us about this, please.
2: When the provost and I and several of the trustees who, who were really intimately involved in the financial planning of the university looked at what happened to the endowment, we realized we needed to do a reset. So the first thing we had to decide was what was going to be untouchable in that reset. And we made the decision that w- despite the fact that we had made this, as you said, enormous commitment to financial aid, we decided not to touch uh, financial aid. Nor, nor did we decide to touch faculty. We froze salaries, but we decided not to fire any faculty. Uh, that meant that, that the staff in the university had to bear the brunt of the layoffs uh, that, that uh, occurred. Um, but we did that because we realized that families were going to be under even more stress, uh, given what was happening to the economy at that time. And what was surprising was people were nervous initially, but by and large, uh, people supported it. And by taking quick action we were able to realign the budget in, in basically a one-year period and then get through that dark tunnel and emerge on the other side and begin to uh, move the university forward again. Uh, and it worked well, but it was, a, it was nip and tuck for a while, given the scale of the – we lost over a billion dollars in cash, for example, uh, at that time.
3: Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. Start your journey at steeple.com. That's S T I F E
2: L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE.
0: The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar, and premier sponsor QB. Join heads of state. Influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at cuttereconomicforum.com. Stanford
1: has always allowed students and faculty to be entrepreneurs. How do you handle the question of who takes the credit and profits from innovations incubated by a university such as Stanford? Stanford.
2: Well, the first thing I think is we try, to, we try to be fair and equitable with everybody. And we try to remember that our first obligation is to try to ensure that whatever technologies uh, we create uh, end up benefiting society somehow, whether it's through the creation of new companies that create job opportunities, technologies that improve the quality of life for people. So we try not to be in a situation where we're trying to extract something from a young startup that would hinder their ability to be successful. Um, and instead, we try to think about how do we get on the same side as the entrepreneur to make them successful while still being fair and equitable to the to the university in terms of sharing the, the proceeds of a successful uh, startup.
1: Tech companies such as Amazon, Google, and Facebook are accused of being monopolies, how would you regulate companies that are becoming something more akin to an infrastructure?
2: Well, that's a good question. I think we, we, um, we're now seeing the limitations of our existing uh, laws, whether you think of antitrust or other legal mechanisms that, that might be used. Um, it's true that the platform companies have become extremely influential. I think they continue to improve. Uh, quality of uh, opportunity and service to their customers. And if they don't, their customers will eventually uh, leave them. Um, but we need to think differently. I think we made a, we made a mistake when we uh, built the Internet out. Uh, we didn't think about really how to reimburse content providers. There was this gold rush. Content would be free. Uh, and the truth is it costs money to create content. And had we um, developed some of the ideas, often called micropayments, for example, I think we would have done a much better job of preserving some of our content creators, publishers, um, and we certainly would have made a less rocky road for them as they went into this new era.
1: That's an incredibly farsighted view. Um, Jack Dorsey, the CEO of Twitter, just told a reporter that the company basically has no real plans for dealing with the neo Nazis who have proliferated on the site. How much accountability should companies like Facebook and Twitter have to police hate speech, threats, and misinformation campaigns by foreign actors?
2: I think this is the real challenge we face. Um, these these companies and these platforms have now become so powerful and widespread. Uh, that they become pseudo-news sources. And how we ensure that the information on them is as accurate as possible, how we balance uh, First Amendment rights um, together with the, our, our obligation to try to improve and make society better is a real struggle, I think. Um, and we've certainly struggled with that, with, that, with that problem at YouTube, for example, uh, with respect to videos. Um, Foreign agents are another complication, and perhaps the most dangerous one, because I think it is the case that they seek to interfere with our democratic processes. And that is something we need to be much more acutely aware of, and we need to be on top of.
1: You've said that anybody who does business in China compromises some of their core values. Yet it seems that companies are willing to compromise on values, What's your opinion on doing business with repressive regimes? I
2: think it's extremely uh, difficult ground to walk on. You, um, in China, if you were to offer any information service, the benefit you will offer to the, to the citizens of China is clearly potentially there. Their current access to information is extremely limited. At the same time, if you're going to run such a business, you are going to have to accept the fact that the government will uh, censor you periodically on certain on certain topics so you've you've got your it's almost a catch twenty um, two in order to provide better information to people in in countries that have repressive regimes. We need technology on the other hand, that technology cannot operate very long if it doesn't accept some compromises in the breadth and accuracy of the information. Um, so in the end, I, I conclude that we've got to figure out a way to make progress and probably got to decide, balance balance um, a greater good against some evil and decide which is better.
1: John, an early investor in Facebook, Roger McNamee, has written a book that's been called an anti-Facebook manifesto in which he says large corporations typically create interrelated eddies of economic activity, whereas Facebook's business model is founded upon sucking the economic activity out of otherwise productive workers. A company whose product is used by one-third of the planet has only 30,000 employees. In every imaginable sense, Facebook is a Borg-like drain on the world's economy. What do you think of that uh, observation?
2: Well, I think it's a pretty harsh. <laughs> it's a harsh criticism. I think the question of how uh, a company like Facebook is going to ensure that its products benefit and improve society is one that the company really needs to grapple with. And I think it, it has built a very successful business model, whether or not it's um, fundamental premise, which is um, sharing between people is so good that we don't need to worry about any of the negative consequences. I think that's the question it now needs to ask itself. There are clearly negative consequences. Um, How does the company uh, grapple with those and address those? And I, I think it's up to all of us to hold them accountable.
1: Well, if you're going to hold them accountable, you've said that the mantra of Silicon Valley leadership to, quote, move fast and break things was fine at the beginning, but now there's a need for a new mantra. What would you suggest?
2: I I think there there is a need for a new mantra. That old mantra worked well when we were building products for techies and maybe even business people, but it doesn't work when we're building products that change the lives of people every single day. I think we need a mantra that says, do something constructive for society. Your products, it's fine. You're you're a corporation. Everybody understands that there'll be a profit motive involved. But your products should make people's lives better in some clear way. And you should work hard to mitigate the unintended consequences. Even if they're unintended, you still have an obligation to pay attention to those secondary consequences.
1: Now, you write that leaders need to develop a framework for thinking through and ethical issue what's your framework
2: my framework is to start out by thinking about will this technology improve the quality of life uh, for people around the world and if so how can I clearly articulate why it will improve it and then I work from there to think about are there secondary consequences how do we deal with those um, but I start with I start with that framework and I think We're going to need this as we deploy artificial intelligence technology, for example. Um, There's great, great opportunities to improve quality of human life, um, but there's also opportunity to misuse that technology in ways that can be destructive.
1: Well, you've had an incredibly productive life in almost every aspect of it. When you got involved in, in Google, one of the most fascinating Companies in the history of American entrepreneurship. What did you want to accomplish with that?
2: Well, I wanted to see if I could help the company be the very best it could. Early on, um, Larry and Sergey had this vision of organizing the world's information and making it useful for people. And I, I was enamored of that vision. I thought there's so much information in the world. If we can really harness it, in ways that's accessible to people and that they can use so that an individual can go online facing a personal health care crisis, can go online and get the information uh, that they need to try to to deal with their personal challenges.
1: The last part of your book is an extensive reading list you undertook to inform your ideas of leadership when you became the president of Stanford. You include fiction because of what one can learn about human nature. What fiction book or books have stayed with you?
2: Well, I think A Tale of Two Cities was one of the books that I read when I was quite young, and I've read several times since then, and has always uh, stayed with me, I think. Uh, I admire Dickens' combination, not only of the incredible characters he draws um, in in his book, uh, incredible writing, just a mastery of the English sentence, but also his willingness to grapple with the societal challenges that existed in that time in the United Kingdom and to bring them front and center and make it clear to everybody that uh, the, the England of the time had to improve things to become a more, a more just society.
1: Martin Chuzzlewit is my own personal favorite. Oh, uh, yeah, classic. I love Dickens. Who were your mentors when you started out?
2: Uh, I had several faculty colleagues who uh, acted as as mentors for me early on, who were sort of senior faculty members and helped inspire me, think about developing my research career and furthering it. And they made a big difference in in how I thought about uh, pursuing uh, pursuing my research and teaching activities.
1: In the book, you write about being offered the position as president of Stanford. And while you were deciding if you were up to it, you heard a talk by the outgoing provost, Condi Rice. What did she say that helped you make that decision?
2: Condi told a wonderful story about her uh, grandfather, who was a black sharecropper in Alabama, and had an opportunity to go to college if he was determined to follow a career as a minister, which he decided that that was the only way he was going to be able to afford to go to college, so he did which is how the Rice family became Presbyterian. But then her father and her mother both got their college degrees. And, of course, um, she went on to become uh, the first African-American woman to be Secretary of State. And what she said at the end was, education made that possible for my family, and that's why I've dedicated my life to education. Uh, And when I heard that talk, I said that that's right, and I should dedicate myself to the role of playing an important leadership role in this university.
1: He's the chairman of the board of Alphabet, and for 16 years was the president of Stanford University. He's written a book that's a reflection on the lessons learned called Leading Matters. He's also the co-founder and director of the knight Hennessy Scholars, the largest fully endowed scholars program in the world, providing full scholarships for a graduate education at Stanford with the goal of developing a new generation of global leaders. John Hennessy, thanks for joining us. By the way, if you have comments about the program or suggestions for topics, please email me at a closer look at blumberg.net. That's a closer look, one word, at blumberg.net, and follow me on Twitter at Arthur Levitt. This is a closer look with Arthur
0: Levitt.